Welcome to Conscious Thinking, the podcast for the Conscious Advertising Network. I'm your host, Ete Davies, Chief Operating Officer across Emea for Dentsu Creative. Today I'm joined by Ollie Hayes, Policy Campaign's Lead for Global Action Plan, Beth Kerr, Group Wellbeing Director at Cognitor, the Global Schools Group, and, and also an experienced media commentator on young people's well-being, Melanie Kentish, who is the Managing Partner at Gleam, which is a talent management and influencer marketing agency within the Dentsu Creative Network. She's also a former Group Director of Influencers at Sky, and also Callum Hood, who is the Head of Research at the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. So today, our panel discusses the implications behind a government delay of the new Children's Wellbeing Code, which is part of the online safety bill. We're going to ask the question, how are we actively protecting our children within the internet and the oncoming metaverse? This is arguably one of the most emotive topics we'll be discussing in the series of the CAN podcast. So before we get started, for those of you listening, I should mention this podcast is being recorded within weeks of the coroner's verdict on the inquest of the tragic death of Molly Russell. The coroner's verdict was a world first in citing social media as a causal factor in a death, whereby he found that Molly Rose Russell died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. It's a verdict that has drawn pretty much universal response across all levels of politics and society within the UK, to even Prince William releasing a statement that online safety for our children and young people needs to be a prerequisite, not an afterthought. And when you hear of the content that Molly was being repeatedly served and targeted with, it is incredibly harrowing and disturbing. The two main cited platforms which were responsible for the terrible content that Molly was exposed to were Instagram, owned by Facebook slash Meta, and Pinterest. So Beth, obviously there's been a lot of coverage in the news over the last year, particularly around the social platforms and you know various leaks and exposés as to how much they put profits over you know responsibility and in particular you had um francis hohen who was a, a former product manager at facebook and she turned whistleblower and she shared insights and information into the fact that the platform was suppressing its own research that indicated that you know instagram had been looking into the damaging effects of the content they're serving on the health of teenage girls particularly around body image issues but also around suicidal thoughts in your role and capacity at Cognitor, where you have you know oversight of around 70,000 students uh, globally from nursery to school leavers, what are some of the negative and harmful effects that you're, you're seeing uh, across that community and what actions has been sort of really put upon schools to take to, to address the problem and, you know, sort of protect children's well-being when it comes to technology and social media platforms? Yeah, well, look, you know, just to sort of set some context, we know that adult, adults and mind adolescents have a, a really complicated relationship with, with social media and, and technology. Um, it wasn't, the internet wasn't originally designed for children and young people, yet they are its most prolific and accomplished users. And so, we have that situation, then we are usually, you know, you would turn to research and science um, and yet that is not robust or relevant enough to help guide the advice we give to young people. Um, and so you, you could say, well, you could hide behind that a little bit and say, well, there's not enough evidence there or the proof is not there for us to take action. But of course, school can't do that because they know, they can see, not just from the headlines, but from the, you know, the, the dominant role that technology plays um not all bad you know there are good and bad things of course about it so i suppose from the first thing that that i would say is that schools parents and children uh, i think bear the brunt of 
of how they, they, they deal with the fallout from when things do go wrong. There's very little guidance unless it's, you know, really serious in a police matter um, where you have that sort of intervention. If there are issues within school or young people have, you know, fallen into a trap of, of misusing it or they've seen something that's upset them and you, you as a teacher are trying to unpick it. Not all teachers are really great at technology. The speed of it moves so quickly. So teachers and parents and families have spent hours and hours and hours trying to unpick what's happened. You often come up against, you know, a brick wall when you ask for support. So I think it would be amazing if there was, I don't know, some sort of school support dedicated helpline. So if you were in this situation, straight away, the, the social media platforms, they had a duty that there was some sort of support line. That would be amazing. Um, I think that, you know, schools are always educating. It's got to be, there is no silver bullet. There's no sort of magic number of hours or certain number of platforms that you're meant to use or anything else. And so when we're thinking about educating students and when we think about the lack of research, that means you have to talk to students now and young people now. You know, I'm not a politician. I don't know how much these social media companies do that as well. But it would be great if they engaged in that debate so that they could see actually what was the the impact in, in these young people's lives. I think that looking at the adverts and the way social media is designed, I have a real issue with the fact that it is clearly designed um, based on adolescent neurodevelopment to target it. They're scientists, the people who design these games, and they, they can see what exactly presses the buttons. And so, the, you know, children end up feeling like a failure if they succumb to being online for too long or, or make a mistake or do whatever else. But actually, you know, the whole the way it's designed is targeted there. So, you know, if there was some sort of acknowledgement or some sort of way that when you were designing uh, content and platforms for, for children, you're not trying to press the buttons of the fact that they have a higher propensity to take risks or they have an increased sensitivity to rewards. And I think perhaps, you know, finally, age verification, why is it so difficult? If if the age is that the social media platforms, if they stuck to it, then that would save a whole lot of, of hassle. But of course, it's it's very easy for kids to, you know, circumnavigate the various age groups. And although everyone, you know, over the years, everybody, perhaps, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you would you know, might buy some alcohol before you were, it was still difficult, whereas it really isn't difficult. And so again, schools, parents are left, you know, trying to face it and you're pitching children against each other. Some pet children, they may have, you know, signed up to WhatsApp before they're old enough. Others then have parents perhaps who've switched on, not let them. And then you create this tension between the children when their peers are at their most. So I think there is a lot that could be done if, if there was a bit more of a unified children first, not profits first. Yeah, one hundred percent. And what you suggest is some actually pretty clear and sort of straightforward measures that you would assume would be collectively within the power of you know most of the platforms. Particularly the point you made around the fact that the whole business model is around designing products for high levels of engagement. So this is this is thought through for people to consume the content, to share it, to then feed obviously the algorithms that then feeds more behaviour that happens on an individual and a sort of community level. But the word that you use, which I think in particular came through, is is duty really, and it sort of you think about the accountability for something that you make. You know, whether that is a car that moves, you know, kind of quickly, or you know, it's a like a microwave or whatever. There is a set of rules and responsibilities that you're expected to adhere to as a business or an organisation, both commercially but also legally to not cause harm to people that are using it or, you know, particularly for people who aren't 
designed or intended to use it, which you know is what some of the proponents of the social media platforms kind of say. And they've been historically very, very slow to act, given that you know Facebook, for example, we're talking nearly twenty years that this technology has been around. So plenty of time, both for government legislation, arguably, but also for the organisations based on the information and data that they have to start adapting their product to be more responsible. So coming to you, sort of, Callum, really, and the, the research that you're, you know, you've been doing around that, when we think about the bill and we think what's coming through, what are some of the, um, the actions and the key points of the bill you think that will drive that accountability from the platforms that sort of Beth is speaking to? And honestly, what's holding it up? Well, it's just as you said, it's like the safety of a car. And when, when you design a car, you design it so that it's not going to injure the passengers. Mm. They're designing a service and we know it causes harm. As you said, we've got you know these amazing details from the Molly Russell inquest. I think it was 2,000 images of self-harm that she was shown on, or to do with self-harm that she was shown on Instagram in the lead up to her death. So what the online safety bill tries to do is introduce duties on the platforms mm to ensure that their services are safe by design from the start. And a lot of the bill is focused towards safety by design for children. So there's a lot of heavy requirements on platforms to ensure that where a service, where a website is likely to be accessed by children, that it's designed with the safety of those children in mind. So that's stuff like what content gets recommended to them, how open their profiles are and how easily people can find them and talk to them, for example. So it's meant to be all sorts of things. Now, ironically, the problem is not that people don't agree that's a decent solution for children and that children's safety is important. There's wide agreement on that. What is now holding up the online safety bill is harms to adults, and what level of duty there is on platforms to ensure that their services are safe for adults and how honest they are with their users about their standards on things like hate and disinformation and what action they take when when stuff breaches their standards. A lot of it's about transparency. So it's all held up on that. And and what I would say is there's lots of organisations in this space, including ours, who make the point. Um, you know, I mean, Beth was saying age verification doesn't always work that well for kids. They they easily circumvent it. Kids can access adult content too. There's not some limited playground area of the internet that kids are limited to. So what we say is you need to try and make the internet and social media platforms safer for adults and children because children are going to end up encountering some of those same harms that adults do. So you need to raise the standard for everyone. But that's what's holding it up at the moment as the government's in two minds about whether to proceed with that part of it about adults. Which does seem quite baffling because, you know, to your point, what we're talking about is harms towards human beings. And you're just talking about a scale of emotional or life maturity with some people being at the more vulnerable end of it. So if anything speeding such a legislation through is actually quite critical to protect the most vulnerable people in our society, but actually all of us. You talk about adults at 18, but we know that adolescent brain development doesn't finish till they're 24. So we've got this group of adults that are 18, 19, 20, that don't have any of those sorts of safety measures and they're really vulnerable, you know, and they haven't got school or parents around to protect them, which is why we see such startling uh, news from universities. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and this, I guess, quantified and compounded life experience, which I'm, you know, I'm sure you see wor- working in education to critically assess the information they've been given. I mean, we've seen many times over the last few years what misinformation alone from the platforms has done to adults of voting age, you know, and how, how that's misled them around uh, opinions or, you know, when it comes to public health crises. And we're asking children who 
may have not developed the capacity for critical thought yet to deal with the the same barrage of content and information. And well, I guess one of the most sort of shocking and uh, you know arguably insidious arguments around the tech platforms not either policing this or regulating this comes to to sort of freedom of speech. And I won't recap it because it, it is really quite galling. But the reaction of the um, Facebook representative Lagone when challenged by a lawyer around whether or not she thinks the material. Is, is safe, you know, along the lines of, well, people should be safe to express themselves. The bill itself actually makes provision to safeguard freedom of expression, you know, pluralism, democracy and, and journalism, stating that the largest social media platforms will no longer be able to arbitrarily remove harmful content. Arguably, yes, protecting freedom of speech, but in and of itself feels like a dangerous statement to have in a bill because it encourages further abdication. So, Ollie, I want to sort of bring you into the conversation, really. Are we in a situation where we're sort of trying to strike a balance in that paradox of tolerance between freedom of expression and speech for those that may look to seek content that others may deem harmful? Or is this just really straightforward and what you couldn't do legally in real life, you shouldn't be able to do online? Uh, Yeah, I think in a sense, it's it's kind of regrettable that what's a very nuanced and complicated debate is is characterized as freedom of speech versus harm prevention um and particularly as that relates to kids i mean it overlooks a couple of things one is that on you know on these platforms the the major platforms we're talking about there isn't currently unbridled freedom of speech because they all have terms of use that we sign up to and community guidelines that we sign up to. so it's not the case that you can already just you know say whatever you like and the second point is that you know, some of us might feel like we have free speech, but it often, what we say often very impacts the free speech, very much impacts the free speech of others. So we might silence other people. We might particularly marginalise communities who might leave these platforms for, for fear of abuse or whatever, or mm. they'll self-censor. Um, and also it overlooks the fact that children too have a right to freedom of, of expression. But I think the, you know, the point that, that we make and have made most forcefully a global action plan when we've been sub- making submissions to the government's various consultations is that the bill's approach to content rather than systems is always going to, to let it down. And um, as others have alluded to already, you know, that there is zero commercial incentive for these platforms to stop people being and kids and adults alike being served up ever more inflammatory content, regardless of, of what that content is, because the more engaging it is, the longer they are engaged and the more it's shared means the more ad revenue they get. And and that's the reality that we're, we're, we're trying to play whack-a-mole with a whole series of harms and a whole sort of series of categories of content as they pop up, when the reality is that the systems are going to drive this stuff all the time. And, to, and until that comes into scope, until we're talking about the recommender systems and whether we are okay with news feeds that are enragement and engagement based rather than than based on um on timelines if you like and whether we're okay with an advertising model that is incredibly invasive and harvests much hard data about us and infers a lot more data about us in order to service ever more personalized and targeted advertising until we're having those conversations i think we're going to be we are just going to be continuing continuing to play whack-a-mole and just to pick up on, on, a, on the point you raised there about the Molly Russell inquest, it's actually worse in that when pressed by the, by the coroner, the Facebook 
you know, representative was asked, you know, is, is this content safe or not? Because they gave, as you say, a, a fairly evasive answer saying people have the right to, to express themselves. And then they were pressed and they said, yes, it is safe. And that reveals the fact that they can't admit, they cannot admit that this stuff isn't safe because then the whole thing falls down. And yet we've seen from Francis Haugen's whistleblowing that they know, they know the damage they're causing. And I think really then you start to look at these platforms very much in the same light as you look at big oil and, and big tobacco. You know, they are causing, knowingly causing massive societal harms. And who's paying to clear it up? Who's dealing with the consequences? It's wider society. It's as, as, uh, as Beth was saying, it's, it's teachers and kids and parents. It's not Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. And the two points that you made there just just so right in, in agreement with them that the activism to sort of uh, address this or the action that needs to be taken ends up being often the people harmed by it or you know sort of end consumers in wider society rather than the sort of you know people benefiting from it or that you know those sort of producing it as source and I, I want to come back to sort of touch on the advertising model um particularly given previous legislation that's come through um for you know online advertising online on, on marketing but on that point around activism and critically, I guess, the role of brands and creators, the, the sort of revenue driving machines that, you know, sort of underpin many of these uh, social media platforms or sort of uh, tech companies. Mel, you know, over, over the last few years, like a lot of brands have become very obsessed with with brand safety and very much thinking about where where is my content kind of appearing and, you know, how does that you know, reflect on the message that I'm sending, everything from, you know, is it appearing in places whereby the content might be offensive to other people, all the way through to is it appearing next to a brand that I don't necessarily want to be associated with in terms of price point. And there is a lot of time and investment and focus going into that. And particularly when it comes to the selection of creators or influencers, or, you know, content, you know, um, creators, people with audiences that you work with. Are you seeing much activism or sort of pressure from influencers and creators to address this specific issue around the online safety of actual users, particularly vulnerable users and, and, and children? And also, what's the experience of the creators and the influencers themselves that are, are in these spaces, in these territories, whereby their own brand and their own reputation is being served alongside this content that's being very damaging to the the very audience that they thrive on. Yeah, um, I think we've definitely seen things change. Um, so many creators have been speaking out about it and really wanting this bill to go through, um, both for the responsibility of their communities, but also for their own protection. Um, so recently, em Emily Clarkson, Amber Rose Gill, Dr. Alex George all went to the DCMS and were pushing for the bill to be processed because not only is it damaging vulnerable people psychologically, but also physically. And these creators who have great power through the platforms they have and they're following also have great responsibility to their audiences. And so they're doing all that they can, but it, it needs the platforms to really step up to take responsibility and it needs the legislation in place to hold them accountable. So the point around brands, brands that are doing it well now are moving towards creators that are much more representative and inclusive of the audiences that they're going after. So I think if you look back even five years ago from now, it was mainly 
very, very slim white middle-class creators that had the biggest following. And actually now there's been a massive backlash against that. Um, you are seeing brands working with plus size models. They are more value driven um, and they stand for something much more than just the way that they look. And I think there's ever more growing importance that that is the case and that we are sending a positive message to to our, our young people that are going to grow up and they're going to be damaged as a result of this. From a creator perspective, they face so much abuse, like so much abuse. And I don't think even their communities realise, yes, they will get horrible messages in the comments of their feeds. And quite often that's aimed at them or it's talking about their children, their families who haven't signed up to social media. They haven't asked to be a part of this. Um, they get direct messages. They, I know creators who have had death threats sent to them and nobody should be facing this. In addition to that, I think it's, it's sending a message to audiences that are seeing these comments and are facing this hate speech, even though it's not directed at them. And it's kind of normalizing that this behavior is okay. As soon as anybody becomes anonymous, they become this kind of keyboard warrior and think that it's acceptable to say things that they wouldn't say to somebody in the street. Um, so it's, it's really, really important that this gets shut down. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's that the point you made around normalization of behavior which on a very basic level you wouldn't accept or expect in normal physical society interactions but you know is is illegal you know and is sort of protected by the statutes of laws that we have and, and it brings me back to the sort of thought and question that I had before which is both a bit for yourself and and, and Ollie really and it, it's it's about GDPR you know and and obviously part of the challenges of getting that through and, and where we've got to now was, you know, how do you make this multinational legislation that you know protects how our data is used, exposed, and sort of gives us that transparency. Now, at the time of GDPR coming through, there was a raft of agencies and brands pushing out uh, information on how to tackle the the change that was coming with the legislation, what it would mean in terms of moving from third party to sort of first party data, Lots of agencies were developing their business models around this and offering sort of services and, and packages and, and so on. So it, it became almost revenue generating, and it still is for many parts of the industry, to help brands, businesses get ahead of GDPR. We're not seeing the same when it comes to online safety, harm towards children, as Callum pointed out, actually harm to you know all adults and members of society across, across the spectrum why do you think this is because you know ultimately it is a risk to consumers and the environment that you are creating as a brand within your ecosystem for consumers but it's not given that we know this legislation is coming the same level of sort of fervent activity to help get ahead of it and make the changes that are needed doesn't that appetite doesn't seem to be there compared to the gdpr i'm just curious if either of you had an opinion on why there isn't the the sort of drive in the same way there was I don't mind going first. I mean, from my perspective, we're already doing it. So for a brand strategy, we will always be going out and making sure that we are working with the very best creators um, that are sending positive messages that the selection of creators is fully inclusive. So that's already happening. And we advise creators in terms of what is suitable and what isn't suitable, um, even though 
that's not legislative at the moment. I think moving forwards, there absolutely needs to be more done by agencies and by talent management in particular to ensure that content going up is authentic, that we aren't editing images to make creators look smaller and and change their appearances, setting unrealistic expectations for young people looking at these creators as role models. And I think what we will start to see is a movement towards different platforms. So the rise of Be Real is an absolute prime example of communities wanting to move away from this unrealistic expectation that has been set upon them. Um, and I think agencies in particular need to help brands in, in working out where their place is on platforms that are doing the right thing and are sending positive messages. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, I mean, there's a certain amount of speculation in what I'm about to say, but I mean, it's notable that GDPR emerged out of Europe, uh, where, you know, the process was predictable. Um, you know, there were lots of wrangling around it, um, but it was a, a steady, predictable process and things that were planned happened. And there was an element of competence there uh, that I think if I was looking at what was coming out of the UK government over the last period of time, and I mean, how many Secretary of State have there been at DCMS while this piece of legislation has been rolling through? I mean, I think I think we're on the fifth now. I don't know if I was a if I was a, an organisation looking to consider the impacts of this piece of legislation, I would have much less confidence that it was it was going to look like what it currently looks like when it when it appears than I did with GDPR. The other thing is that there are there are lots of people, particularly within the kind of privacy world, who are of the view that that really enforcement of GDPR is a much bigger problem, and that there are so many protections afforded within GDPR when taken on at face value that are not being enforced and regulators have proven themselves, you know, here in the UK, obviously it was the Information Commissioner's Office, which is in charge of, of the enforcement of, of, um, of the Data Protection Act, as it became known. But, you know, they've proven themselves to be very, very toothless um, in the face of some of these existing regulations. So I think it's worth just noting that we don't always need another bit of legislation. Sometimes the problem is that we have a lack of, um, of enforcement. And it's also notable that in terms of the, the, the children's element of GDPR, member states had the option of um, choosing an age group that, that the child relevant bits applied to. And most European member states, not all, stuck with 18. The UK brought it down to 13. So clearly that says to me, doing as little as possible, trying to, <laughs> trying to regulate as few people as possible so yeah apologies for cynicism yeah and well cynicism is probably warranted given the current state of affairs we've talked quite a bit about age gating and age verification and you know obviously it's used by many brands in their sort of online experiences and sort of many organizations to varying levels of efficacy you know some are quite easy to to, to get around and as beth has pointed out you know children are in ingenuous creatures and they, they will find ways to navigate things that are sort of you know kind of contraband or that, and that they shouldn't be having access to what steps can be taken Ollie, in terms of making age gating or age verification more effective when we know many of the um, measures that exist in place for things not related to the subject that we're talking about are quite easy to circumvent yeah i think it's a great question and i mean i think as as has already been mentioned one in three users of the internet worldwide are kids. But the internet is designed by adults 
primarily for adults. So we have this huge discrepancy or disparity there. It's a very vexed issue and, and a global action plan. We've worked with people who frankly take very divergent views on this. I think it's really worth remembering that in terms of kind of children's development, transgression is a really important part of that development. You know, learning what the rules are, working out whether you're comfortable breaking them, to what extent you're comfortable breaking them, how much risk you're prepared to take. You know, we all did that as we were growing up. And so much of the modern internet has has stripped away the signals that you shouldn't even be there as a child. You know, and, and porn is the classic example where, you know, if there is nothing stopping you as a child going onto a porn site, then you're not even being told that you shouldn't be there. And that then adds to the kind of normalisation of, of kids accessing porn and all the problems that, that come from that. That said, you know, there, is, there are legitimate concerns within the privacy community, particularly that the pursuit of age verification and, and age gating leads to yet more surveillance of children and, and the capturing of their data. And as the uh, the Conscious Advertising Network's manifesto on children's well-being leads with this extraordinary stat that by the time a child turns 13, the ad tech world has already got 72 million data points on that child. You know, there is an extraordinary amount of data already being captured and with vanishing little discussion about that. So I think really we, the best and sort of most elegant solution that I've heard is is to to turn the problem on its head really, and say well okay let, let's let's put the onus on adults to prove that they're adults in certain spaces and you know global action plans focus has always been on what we call surveillance advertising that's kind of you know tracking and and behavioural advertising. And we think that's a good example of where, you know, if as an adult you really wanted to opt into a system whereby you were tracked and, you know, served retargeting adverts and everything, then, okay, fine. Like, provide some form of hard D if you want hard ID, um, sign up to an age verification scheme, prove that you're an adult. Otherwise, the platform or whoever else should work on the basis that that you're a child. And I think that you know, that, that is our preferred solution in this space. And I'm sure others will, will disagree. It's also worth noting that, of course, as you mentioned, plenty of age verification at differing levels is already happening. And I think the organisation Five Rights have been at the front of trying to say, well, at least let's agree on some standards then. Because, you know, the, the major platforms, they're all doing it. But we it's a black box. We don't know what's inside it. We don't know what data they're collecting, what they're not. So let's agree on some on some standards at the kind of statutory level as to how that would all work. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting idea because at the moment it's almost as if the, you know, we know that kids are driven in, in their teenagers to go towards their peers. So they will do anything to get onto a platform where all their friends are. They'll do anything to get into the party. Um, and yet then they get blamed. Well, you know, they, they lied about their age to get onto the platform. So then the, the onus is on the child or they lied and actually... In the way you describe it, then, if you had to prove you're an adult, because you're, you're pitting you're pitting teenagers against their own brain, they're never gonna they're never gonna not do that because that's where their whole social circle is, and then yet they you know they get blamed and well that's why it didn't work. Yeah, one hundred percent. That that point around, um, and I'm sure you you witness it a lot, Beth. That transgression being part of your actual development, you know, and sort of framing your outlook in. In, in society and how you develop as, as an individual and the point around the fact that we, we currently have statutory legislation that if you were with a bunch of your mates and you're what, 14, 15 trying to you know buy beer, if you don't have ID, you're not going to get it. If someone tries to make a fake ID, it's still incumbent on the vendor 
to double check your ID at for the age of 21. And if they feel unsure, the law says, do not serve, you know, similar to, to sort of Ollie's point. It, it sort of draws me back to the point that like we have sets of norms, rules, legislation that exist in the real world. We're creating virtual spaces where we've essentially said the rules don't apply but these are still human beings operating in those spaces. And the reason we have those guidance in the real world is so that everybody can live safely and, you know, statutory legislation across all of those things. And I, I think your suggestion is actually a, a brilliant one. Um, would you care to repeat the name of the organisation that you said is advocating for that or sort of uh, pushing for that? Well, for, for the standards-based approach, that's uh, an organisation called the Five Rights Foundation. And they uh, have done a lot of work in this space. And were very integral to the adoption of the UK adopting the age-appropriate design code, which has now been replicated recently in, in California. So it seems to be making waves. Mel, you talked earlier on about the abuse experienced by you know influencers and creators and that they are often at the very sort of spear point of the harm that then their audience and their communities also sort of experience and, and there's little sort of protection being given to them. And um, Callum, I know again in, in, in the research that you, you do with your organisation, you've been looking into, I mean, we're all very familiar with it now and in terms of the, the, the horrible term actually sliding into someone's DMs connotates with it some kind of menace or sort of malicious behaviour. But would you care to shed a bit more light on on what you've discovered? Yeah, so, you know, there's these moments where influencers and public figures become this huge flashpoint that makes it obvious just how bad hate or abuse is online. Um, and we're in touch with, you know, some public figures. And um, we know women have it much worse. We know that, you know, people who are ethnic minorities have it much worse. If you're if you're putting your neck out there, you know, and you're in one of those categories online, you get all sorts of hate and abuse. And what we'd heard was that um as as Melanie said, a lot of that abuse comes over DM and it's sort of invisible to anybody from the outside. So what we did was we worked with some women who are big public figures, including Amber Heard and Rachel Riley, and um, they gave us a lot, put a lot of trust in us and, and let us look at the sort of DMs they received from strangers. Um, and we went through it and analysed it and, and saw what the platforms do when it's reported to them. Um, and what we found was that, you know, many cases, you know, there's lots of image-based sexual abuse, you know, there's lots of death threats, really violent threats, but you wouldn't believe the quantity. I mean, it really puts a burden on public figures on what, what to do with this stuff. I mean, part of the problem is if it's been sent to you over DM, um, and, and this is part of the problem as well with, with public abuse, it will come up in your notifications. You know, you'll be being told every every time one of these messages comes in or one of these comments comes in. And so as a really, uh, the full scale of it is really obvious to you. For someone from the outside, they're not going to see those DMs. They only get to see, I think Instagram loads about 20 comments at once on a post, right? So if there's thousands of them, people only see a slim portion and Instagram will put the positive ones up so the full scale of the abuse and harassment is only apparent to the victim. And then the burden is upon them to do something about it. So the burden's all in the wrong place. You know, so you get all these death threats. Yes, yeah, some of it might be criminal. You'd actually have to go through and read all the death threats and then decide which ones you want to send on to the police. And then you'll be locked into a whole process with the police as well. So it's completely sort of topsy-turvy mm. with the platforms failing to take 
any responsibility for it. And when we reported them to the platform, we found in nine out of 10 cases, the platforms didn't seem to take any action. Um, and of course, this is a problem when it comes to kids too, because these public figures are, you know, some of the people they come to social media to follow and, and, and engage with. And they can see that this abuse is widespread and that nothing gets done about it and just come to think that this is normal and acceptable. Yeah, I mean, in in, in the absence of legislation around an, a harm, you, you know, Beth, Callum, you've both touched on the, the police and sort of engagement with law enforcement and, and, and to what level that happens and how, um, um, how much action they can take. It, are we in a situation where also it's a grey area for the police as to how far they can sort of prosecute or take action you know is it seen as because it's not a direct crime that's happened physically it's sort of seen as less of an issue um, or are they just not similar to everyone else not really given clear guidance or not equipped to to know how to tackle some of this stuff and even you know sort of prosecute some of these cases you know I, i'm not sure from the police's point of view all i, all I know is that it's so difficult to um you're trying to unpick is it, what are my rights here? You know, you're trying to work out with the parent or the student, and and it's almost that they, they make it so complicated that you just give up, and that you know the child might be doing their GCSEs, and the parents are making a call, thinking, well, the right thing to do would be to, you know, go through all of this and and you know go down the right channels, and then you think, yeah, but the best thing for my child ugh, is just to, to to get on with life and put it to one side. So. There's always that, you know, difficult decision. But the truth is, it's so difficult to sift through what your rights are that I think a lot of it gets just swept under the carpet. Yeah, putting the burden of proof and prosecution on the person harmed is, is essentially exacerbating the trauma that they're experiencing. Um, and as you point out, the easiest way to get out of that is to just give up, you know, which is tragic within itself. To that point, I mean, I know of so many creators where they just don't check their DMs anymore. And so as a result, people that are reaching out to them, who they're looking to them as role models and they're looking for advice, they're not, they're not responding because they just don't check their inboxes because they know the abuse that they're going to be facing. Other people have their partners check it for them because they physically don't want to be reading the type of stuff they're facing on a daily basis. Um, creators get content taken down on TikTok, for example, if you have too much flesh exposed, your content gets taken down and yet you're reporting abusive behavior and nothing gets done about it. It just, it feels so wrong. Yeah, it, it does feel completely out of kilter, as you say, whereby you can serve content that encourages suicide, that encourages self-harm, that people are allowed to share abuse. But you know the sort of policing of people's bodies is something that the you know, the social media platforms seem to be completely all over rather than actually things that are sort of quite clearly you know proven acts of harm that again you wouldn't be able to do in, in any other form of physical media there's been much talk around one way to combat this um and and again i you know Ollie and Callum would be keen to hear your views on this and and, and mel too anonymity and Going back to the point around privacy and data, the sort of blurred line between if we have less anonymity on people that register onto social media sites are able to send messages, then there's a more direct route to sort of prosecute them. People are less likely, um, this is the argument, to behave in a nefarious way if they know they can be identified. What's your view on it? Again, it's, it is a very nuanced situation. There are arguments for both sides. I'm just curious to know what the point of view is around that. Well, having done lots of research projects that look at abuse sent online, I would just pose one sort of 
problem with the anonymity thing as a bit of a silver bullet. And that's that lots of the abuse is actually sent by people in their own name with their own image attached to it. So, you know, I think I think anonymity is part of the problem. I've seen some interesting proposals where, you, you know, you might require platforms to put features in whereby if you're, say, an, an influencer or an ordinary user, you could opt out of receiving or seeing messages from users who are not themselves verified real users using their own names and using their own image, um, which I think is an interesting proposal. But there's definitely going to be part of the problem of abuse, a substantial part of it is still going to be there, even if you were to do away with anonymity overnight, unfortunately. What is fascinating for me, given where we are with some of these mainstream social media platforms and technologies that have been around for sort of 20 years is, we're on the advent of Web3, the metaverse, the next iteration of brand human technology experience. Given the last 20 years and the challenges we're facing now, there, there, there seems to be little proactivity or discussion around what's coming. If anything, we seem to be allowing one particular company, which we've already said has less than sort of clear commitments around human safety to dominate the narrative uh, around the metaverse. And Callum, I know you've been doing a lot of research with this. What are your thoughts in terms of how do we prepare for what appears to be a, you know, a, the Wild West phase of, of, of all of this? Can, can we even ready ourselves given the current state of affairs in terms of protecting you know, children and vulnerable people on the internet that we now know a fair amount about? Well, this uh, research that I did started with me being quite angry, listening to Mark Zuckerberg and Nick Clegg give their big presentation about the metaverse, which, you know, for those unfamiliar, is what Meta, the parent company now of Facebook, has decided to be the brand name, as it were, of its virtual reality products. And they gave this presentation and they boasted about how they're putting all the safety measures in place before they launch this thing. And I thought, hang on, you've, you've launched this. They, they purchased the company called Oculus, which was a virtual reality headset uh, manufacturer, years ago. And they've been selling it for years and, and they already had it at the point they did this presentation. I thought, you haven't put any safety measures in at all. So what my organisation did was went in to check on that um, and see see how safe the metaverse is. Um, so we were doing that research. We're in the US and the UK, but we're doing the research from the UK in this case. We were using the most popular social app on there called VR Chat. Spent hours upon hours in in VR recording and and seeing what was going on, and what happened was we saw an in, uh, uh, an incident of abuse or harassment every seven minutes, and in many cases the reporting system that Meta had put in place just didn't work. Every seven minutes. Every so I mean it felt frequent, yeah. and and then when we you know completed the research, as I say, we had all the recordings. You know, I had to go, I had to, I had to see this stuff two or three times in the process because I, w I would witness it live and then I would go back over the footage and identify these incidents, take take out a short clip and give that to Meta as evidence was the hope. But in many cases, their reporting system didn't even work. It wouldn't even accept the user report about someone being abusive. And in terms of what I mean, I mean, you know, racist abuse, sort of simulated sexual harassment, um, people just sort of projecting pornography into a you know, sort of virtual chat room basically, um, for the uninitiated. Um, and, and yeah, either you couldn't file a report or you'd file a report and you get no feedback 
whatsoever. And the really alarming thing was there's lots and lots of kids in these spaces. Yeah. Remarkably, they've made a, desi- a design decision to have adults and kids sharing the same spaces without any ability to discern who's an adult and who's a child other than the tone of voice that they've got. And that means that most people go to the lowest common denominator that anything's okay. There's no enforcement of the rules in there. So there's a culture of sort of impunity. And that means adults are sort of being abusive towards children quite routinely. Um, And people are sort of all speculating about whether he uses an adult or, or a child it's a mess. And, you know, as you said, you know, they're moving into this bold new world of virtual reality. I mean, that's what made me angry. They said they are building safety into this thing and they just haven't. It's just, it's just not true. Um, it's, you know, they've forgotten all of the, you know, hard learned lessons of, 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 you know, a decade in traditional social media, all these mistakes that they've made. And it doesn't seem like they've learned to think because they're doing it all over again in 3D. Yeah, I mean, it very much feels like that. In in fact, just flagrantly ignoring societal norms. I mean, what you're describing of adults and children being in the same space and adults essentially feeling like, you know, all bets are off, I can behave however I want because people know the environment um, isn't police and isn't regulated and there's no code of acceptability or sort of behaviour. And, you know, Beth, that must be a terrifying and sort of baffling situation to kind of confront when... You know, on one hand, as you pointed out, we're we're dealing with ever complex, ever more intuitive existing social media platforms. And then there is this advent of, you know, a a new wave of interaction, which the the, companies and organizations that are building these don't really seem that focused on thinking about the harms behind them um, or putting the effort into it, arguably using that data towards building and developing these products. I mean, is there much thought that's being given towards the kind of metaverse? And you know, what would you, if you could make that request, whether it's you know, Meta, Pinterest, TikTok, any of the others around engaging with organizations like uh, Cognita or other sort of auxiliary well-being and child health organizations, like what's the ask? Like what, 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 what do we need from them? I think the best way we can protect our children is to empower them with digital agency. Mm-hmm. So they, because otherwise it's like putting your finger in the dam, you know, when something else comes out and something else comes out. So, so that's not an effective way. Whereas actually, if you really empower children with the knowledge about what they're using and the, the potential harms and benefits, that they're much more likely to make good decisions. Now, there's a lack of transparency, really. There's a bit of a tick box culture with adverts and so on. So, you know, for example, you're looking at an advert that is, or an influencer or social media, and it's an advert, and in tiny writing at the bottom, it will say ad. And, and they know that children will be watching this late at night when you know the prefrontal cortex not really switched on and they'll just absorb it and believe it and so i think if 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 companies really want to make meaningful change they have to have these complete disclosure when they're you know if they, if they instead of teachers and uh, there are some brilliant educational organizations out there common sense media is one that we and lots of other educators schools rely on you know to kind of cut through the rubbish but if these social media platforms said to children right okay this is our platform. We know you use it. Just to let you know, this is how we're trying to, this, we're hooking you in here. When we have the red like button, you're more likely to adapt to that. It, we uh, reward you um, intermittently because if you look at your dopamine reward circuits, that's more effective. To tell kids that, then they, they can make a decision because actually there was a bit of work, Tristan Harris and the social dilemma. When students started realising that and they're like, oh, oh yeah, oh my gosh. You know, so I think you, you, you can have, you know, 
do do you know obviously they want to entice children and they will use brain science to do that but just be be upfront with them you know produce something that when when you're going um into schools rather than schools having to produce it these are the things we we did to make it enticing in the same way you know when you're an adult and you think i want you to drink this i don't know bottle of wine because it's got this flavor in and it's that and it's this okay fine then i can make a decision whether i want to do it or not and and children they have the ability to, to take charge of their life much perhaps more than we give them credit, but only if they have that information. It shouldn't just be up to schools that are, are trying to teach a million and one other things and prepare them for life outside to, to also try and unpick it um, and be transparent with them. And I think that would be really powerful if they came in. And it might also be, you know, a bit like restorative justice. You know, they're coming in, they're actually speaking to proper children in proper schools, you know, all of it, not just a select panel of a few, which I'm sure many of these social media companies do have a, a select panel, but go into a proper school, speak to these children, maybe the penny might drop and think, mm, you know, and perhaps then there would be a, you know, a better balance. Yeah, absolutely. And and arguably a commercial opportunity even in there for them if the, within the transparency. And as you say, that that sort of informs decision making that you're enabling children to, to have and, and digital agency, which again is something that would be great for every user. And hopefully the, the right technology company that's leaning into this can see that as an opportunity to innovate and to sort of grow responsibly. Really, really fascinating conversation on, as I mentioned before, a very difficult and emotive subject that yeah, arguably the, the sort of moral intuitive case feels quite black and white. But as we've pointed out, and as Ollie mentioned before, there's slight nuances in all of this. Thank you all very much for the time. Thank you, Ollie, Beth, Melanie and Callum. Also, thank you to our Densu creative editorial and production teams who are powering this whole series. The Nerve Music Library for our soundtrack and to all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing to the series wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, go to ConsciousAdNetwork.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.